Well, I was trying to think of an appropriate um, Mother's Day illustration for the sermon today, and I just couldn't come up with one. So, you're going to get an inappropriate one. And here it is, something that should concern you, or maybe not, if you're one of these people. But apparently, they've done surveys in the last couple years, and 11 million, 11, oh, I'm sorry, 12 million, 12 million Americans believe that the country is run by interstellar lizards. This isn't a joke. These are people that actually believe this. I mean, not, it's not Obama, okay? I don't know. Cam, you're in trouble. Um, <laughs> 66 million, that's about 20% of our country, believe that space aliens landed at Roswell, New Mexico, and somehow the government's been covering it up. Now, I saw the movie Independence Day, so I know this is true, that they did indeed do that, and uh, so I'm kind of worried. Um, and then, 114 million Americans believe space aliens have actually visited the Earth. Now, I'm not judging you if you believe it, or I'm not judging you if you don't. I'm just using this as an illustration to say that people are hungry to believe in something, something beyond this existence, something more than, than just what's going on the day to day. They want to believe that something else is at work, even if it's nefarious, I suppose, lizards. Of course, they could be good lizards trying to help us. I'm not sure. Um, I've never met one. But they, they, they want to believe that something is more than what's here. Something is more than, than, the, than the reality that's right here. And, and, and they long for it. They want to believe in something. And you find people out you know, in the world today, looking, longing for something to believe in. Well, what do we do? Why is this happening? Why aren't they believing in what we think is the most obvious and the best to believe in? I don't believe in the truth of Jesus Christ. Well, part of the reason is because we live in a culture today that has decided one thing it cannot believe in is it cannot believe in the traditional. It cannot believe in all of the, the structures from the past because they're flawed. You know, there's problems that they've seen in the church. There's problems they've seen in the government. There's problems they've seen in, in, the, in the philosophies and, and the cultures of the past. And the only really hope for the future is something else. There has to be something else. We can't believe in the traditional. And of course, they, they lump Christianity, they lump Jesus Christ with the traditional. And they, they reject Jesus because they're rejecting the traditions of the church. They're rejecting all the things that, that went along with Jesus and, and never bothering to ask the question, were the people who formed these traditions actually giving a true expression of what Christianity is. Or maybe they were giving an expression of what Christianity is that wasn't meant to be held onto forever. But instead of really asking that question, they just throw it on the side and they would rather believe in lizards or they would rather believe in something else. It's scary. 
Because I think there's something inside of us that wants to believe. And usually we have a couple of responses when we, when we, the things that we wanted to believe in or the things that we thought we could believe in let us down. And one is the worst, and that's people just give up. And they don't believe in anything. This often leads to some form of incredible depression. Or it can also lead to, to bitterness and hatred and anger and wanting to act out at all those people who set them up with false hopes. It's not a great option. It's this place that I think, unfortunately, people who have abandoned the traditions as, as flawed as the traditions were, that the traditions still held together something that gave you hope in hard times, that allowed you to continue on when it seemed like life was impossible. Give up. There's a reason among our younger generations that there's, a, there's an increase in suicide rates. There's a reason for it. It's not an accident. Well, if they don't give up, then, then the, they do the next best thing. They just believe in, in something, anything. They just want to believe. I, I watched my, um, you know, my friends, you know, when I went to high school, you know, I, had, I was a Christian and all of that, but some of my friends, they weren't Christians. And they, we were all typical um, teenagers, you know, and what happens is teenagers tend to become, you know, they, they kind of emerge from their, their, into early adolescence and they become individuals. And they learn what it means to be an individual. And then they're kind of more focused on being an individual. And then they get to be about 18, 19, 20. And especially when they go to college, they realize how, you know, kind of bad just being an individual, just thinking only of themselves. And so what do they do? They go to college and, and I saw friend after friend like suddenly become just, just an adamant supporter of whatever cause happened to walk their way when they were having that moment of, I can't just be selfish and think of myself all, all the time, be a selfish individual. And so my friend who never cared about the whales suddenly wanted to save them all. Because when they got to college, that was the first thing they heard that made them emerge from this, this selfishness. You know, and, and it could be anything. It could be a political party, you know, not so much nowadays, but back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it was young people joining cults because they heard something that helped them be more than just this, this little narcissistic, you know, self-interested person that they had been. They got a social conscience, a global conscience, and they were willing to believe in everything. But I think the most dangerous of all and perhaps the most common is we don't give up and we don't believe in anything or anyone that comes along. We simply create our own belief. And this is particularly dangerous with people who create their own Christianity. And, you know, a lot of times when we talk about people becoming, um, you, know, you know, making idols out of things, we always talk about, you know, they're making idols out of power or they're making idols out of greed or they're actually making idols out of idols, you know. That's what we say. That's what we think. 
And not, all of that is some form of idolatry, but the worst form, the most subtle form, is when we make Christianity what we want it to be. And we make Jesus who we want him to be. And we make God what we want him to be. And the reason it's so dangerous is because we often don't know we're doing it. And we sit very satisfied thinking, ah, oh, I'm a good Christian. Or at least I'm an acceptable Christian. But we made the standards. We defined all the terms. And so we feel good about it. That's the worst. And what we often do is we often, we often create a faith, create a Christianity that fits who we already are. So we were talking a little bit about this in Sunday school today. If you're a giver, if you're somebody who just loves to give, you create a Christianity where you, you just give, give, give. And, and nobody ever questioned you on it because it's awesome. But it's not till later we realize people who are just givers and aren't receivers, you can never have a healthy church. You can never have a healthy church if you don't think that you ever need something from your brothers and sisters in Christ. That you don't think that you can and should ask them for it. It's not a healthy situation. If you think like, oh, I'm, I'm too embarrassed. It's not healthy. So we create a Christianity that's all about giving. And we feel good about it. And other people tell us how giving we are. But it's not healthy. It's not full Christianity. Christianity says we not only are givers. If we're in a healthy community, we also, we also have to receive. If we have a personality that's, that's the opposite, we're takers. We just want whatever God has for us. We want just whatever the church, you know, that's all we want. And we create a Christianity that's, that's taking, just receiving. It's all about blessings that come from God. If we're people who by nature um, like change, we make Christianity all about change. If we're by you know, nature people who don't like change, we make Christianity all about keeping things the same and preserving it. If we love rules, we make Christianity all about rules. If we hate rules, we make Christianity all about freedom. If we like to sacrifice, we make Christianity all about sacrificing. If we're particularly needy, we make Christianity all about having our needs met. All of these are part of a healthy understanding of Christianity. But any one of them alone causes some form of idolatry, a false religion, something that's not Christianity. It's subtle. That's what makes it so dangerous. I've said this before that, and I don't know if I've told you, so if I have, just humor me. I'm getting old and I repeat myself a lot. Um, if smoking cigarettes, if you smoked a cigarette and your head exploded, no one would smoke cigarettes except middle school boys. They're the only ones that would because they would want to see what happens. No one else would. But the danger of smoking cigarettes is not, is the very thing that you can't, you can't see the effects. 
It takes years, it takes decades. Makes it more dangerous. It's that subtle form. We want to believe in something. And so we take Christianity and we shape it to what we want it to be. Well, we look at the text today, our third sermon in Ephesians, and we're in chapter two. Chapter one was all about this is Christ. This is your awesome Savior. This is your awesome Lord. This is the one who's above all creation, who holds all creation together, who's the head of the church. This is Jesus. You need to know him. You need to spend your whole life getting to know more about who he is and what he came to do and what he, in fact, is continuing to do. Chapter 2 begins with the word and. So we just talked about all of these things. Jesus is this. He's seated at the right hand. He's awesome. He's, he's great. He's glorious. And you were dead. He's talking about us now. He's talking about us. Chapter 1, this is Christ. Chapter 2, this is you. And it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I had first given the title to this sermon, But God, because I love that. I love this first half of this passage is just depressing. Just you're slaves, you're, you know, you're, you're dead. And then there's this, but God. But God. It tells us how wonderful we can be in Jesus Christ. But I changed it. And it's because I'm a child of the 80s. And when I was thinking about it, I thought about with or without you. This is what life is with Christ. This is what life is without Christ. With or without you. And usually I say older people explain to the younger people my references today. Younger people explain to them who you too is and the song with or without you. You can do it after service, over Mother's Day lunch. Without Christ. What are we without Christ? Without Christ first thing it tells us in verse 1, we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our sins. 
We are, in fact, the walking dead. Another reference. Explain to your parents and grandparents later. We're as good as dead. It still says we, we're walking. It says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You weren't physically dead, but you were dead in a spiritual sense. You're separate from God with no hope of return. Remember, part of what makes Christianity different from any other faith is that Christianity admits up front that what you need to do to be acceptable to God is impossible. You cannot do it on your own. You can only do it through the power of Jesus Christ. I've yet to find someone tell me, no, 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 there's another faith that says this. I've never heard it. Every other faith has some sense of if you're good enough, if you work hard enough, if you, if you take in these certain practices and this attitude, you're just more positive. Christianity says, no. You can do all those things and your life might be better. But it will never be acceptable to God. It's impossible. We're dead in our sins. There is no hope of return. We're unable to do what we need to do even if we know what needs to be done. Frustrating. Very frustrating. We might even have a longing in our hearts to be alive, but we can't overcome ourselves because we're still trying to do it on our own. We're still trying to have peace on our own. We're still trying to have purpose on our own. We're still trying to do everything on our own. We're still trying to be kind and forgiving and loving and gracious on our own. And you know what? We may be better than most. In fact, we may be better than some people who call themselves Christians. But it's never enough. It's never going to meet God's standard. Which is not to be good sometimes and not to be kind sometimes and not to be forgiving sometimes and not to be gracious sometimes. His standard is is not to be gracious to some and not others and not to be forgiving to some and not others and not to love some and not others. His standard is you are always forgiving to all people. You are always loving to all people. You are always gracious to all people. There is no one outside of, of God's reach. There is no one that you can say, well, God said all except that person. No. It's not, it's not there. That's why it's so hard. It's so hard because it's like, does that mean we have to love people who hate us? Yep. People who are enemies? Yep. People who, you know, take too long when they're going through the grocery cashier line? People who keep chatting up the cashier when I need to get out of there? Yep, them too. People who cut me off? Yep. People who take too long to cut up a tree that fell down and take it off Kalaniyanoli Highway? Yes. Those people too. They all need to be loved. They all need to be forgiven. 
They all need grace. It's funny. It's funny because on one hand, we, we realize this. We realize how impossible that is. And on the other hand, we don't want to admit it. And we want to have some form of Christianity where I just have to be good enough. I can do it in my own power. Well, the second thing Paul tells us here is, verse 2 is, he tells us, in actually 2 and 3, he says, without Christ, we are slaves. We are slaves to our passions, the world, and Satan. By the way, with Christ, we're still slaves, but we're slaves to Christ. It's different. That's because something about us as human beings, something about us as human beings, we long to be independent and free. But there's another part of us that wants to serve something or someone. It's, a, it's, it's one of these things that, that sometimes in our culture we put down. And we say like, no, um, I'm just my own person. Really? You're your own person? Do you wear your underwear on your head and your shoes on your hand? Somebody does that, I'm going to tell them, you're your own person. But all of you dress like someone else. Even people who dress wild are dressing wild like someone else that they saw dressing wild. We're influenced. We're pushed around more so than ever. We're in a world that's inundated with advertising, shaping who you are, conforming your thoughts. I was talking to some of the guys. I was at the track meet, the state championships last night. I was talking to some of the guys because we had more time to talk at that meet because we didn't have as many runners and, and all. And I, was, and I was talking to them about how I used to go run before I had a, a smartphone or even a Walkman or anything, and I could go out and run like 20 miles with nothing. Not one drop of music, nothing. I can't imagine running one mile now without something talking to me, without some audio book or some music or something. Some radio broadcast of a baseball game. I can't imagine it. And I went, how was it before when I could just go run? And I never even thought about it. I'd just go run, and it was fine. Just run, run, run. Take me about two to three hours. Run, come back, I'm good. Now I can't live without it. We're all that way. We have these things that we think we can't live without. We have all these things that we think we have to have and we didn't have to have them just a couple years ago. We think we're free, but we're not. We're controlled more than we think we are. And in some ways, we want to be. Everyone will serve a master. And of course, the, the cleverest master of all is the one who masquerades as you. You thinking you're the one making all these decisions. You're the one doing things that are your choices. Not knowing that they are following the plan that someone else has for you. We're slaves to our passion. We're slaves to the world. 
We're slaves, as he says here, to the prince of the power of the air, and he's referring to Satan. You see, this is why I have always stayed Baptist. And it's not because I think Baptists get everything right. We get things wrong. We do things that I think are just, the kids are downstairs, right? Stupid. (laughs) We sometimes harm the cause of Christ with the way we fight. But the reason I've always stayed Baptist is because Baptists have been people of the book. We are, the, we are people of the word of God. And we, when we agree to that, we always know that even though we disagree, we at least are disagreeing about the Bible. We're not disagreeing about the Bible and a lot of other things out here in culture that may be telling us what to do. We're disagreeing about the Bible. We're trying to follow what the Bible says, and we may not agree on the interpretation, but we agree that we need to interpret the Bible first, understand it first. It doesn't mean we're immune to all the other influences, but it means that we can come together and we can ask the question, what does the Bible say? Not what does culture say, not what does the latest philosophy say, not what does the latest trend say, not do we, what are we seeing in movies and, and TV shows and, and in music, no. What does the Bible say? We come back to it. It's why I've told you from the, before I even came here, and I'll say it till, you know, for all the rest of the time that I'm here. We are first to be disciple makers. If we want to be a church that makes a difference in this changing post-Christian culture, we have to be serious about discipleship, every one of us. Not one of us can just say, oh, that's good for everybody else. No, we all have to be. We all have to be deeply, more and more studying God's word, knowing that sometimes, again, we're going to disagree about it, but that's okay. That's part of it. But that we say God's word is so important, it is the most important thing that I will study and that I will understand. So it keeps us from straying to things that just sound Christian. Some things sound Christian like, you know, we should just let everybody live how they want to live. And we call that grace. That is not grace. Grace is not, we don't say that there's such a thing as sin. There's sin. Grace is, is, is saying, yes, there's sin. And yes, we're all sinners. But there's also God's abundant grace that he wants to pour out on us. But it requires that we ask for forgiveness. It requires that we acknowledge that our sin is sin. God doesn't want to pour out his grace on people that have said, I'm not sinning. I'm perfect. People who think they're perfect don't need grace. Grace is for those of us who know we're not perfect, who know that without Jesus Christ that we have, that we have failed God and that we need his forgiveness. That's who grace is for. 
People who think there's no such thing as sin, there's just difference of opinions. There's different perspectives, there's different lifestyles. They don't need grace, or at least they don't think they do. They're like, I haven't done anything wrong. Why do I need grace? It sounds Christian. It sounds Christian to say stuff like, love is love, but it's not Christian. The Bible takes great pains to show us that love is not love. That you cannot simply equate the word with another word without understanding context. And understanding that God's love is not just unconditional. It's not just eternal. It's not just sacrificial. It's all those things. But it is above all holy. It is a holy love. It is a holy love that reflects the very nature and character of who God is. It's the high demands of being people of the book. But it's also the deep grace that we find in being people of the book. Without Christ, it tells us at the end of verse 3 that we are children of wrath. Children of wrath. You know, that phrase could mean two different things in Greek and it could mean two different things in English. One thing it could mean is that we're the objects of wrath, objects of God's wrath. That if without Christ, that's what we are. And before you get any ideas in your head about, about God's wrath being God who, who's throwing lightning bolts down at people he's upset with, we have to understand what God's wrath is from in Paul's mind. In Paul's mind, when Paul's understanding God's wrath, the best exposition of this we get is in Romans chapter 1. And it says this, that God shows his wrath by letting sinners sin. It says he turns them over to their depraved thinking. He turns them over to their depraved lusts. That's God's wrath. It's not God's wrath goes over there, grabs them, punishes them. No, that's not God's wrath. God's wrath is that he lets them go. If God is the best in the universe, if being with the God is the ultimate in the universe, then the worst thing God can do is let somebody go. They're choosing to go. They want to go. They're following after their, 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 their lust in the world, their, their inability to accept what God has revealed to them. It's all there. But God's wrath is that he lets them go. The other thing this could mean is that we're children of wrath because without Christ, we have within us this kind of bitterness I'm going to tell you a story that I'm only halfway proud of, okay? But when I used to work at HBA, we had a, we had a, depart, a DOE person come in and was going to do training for us. And she said at the beginning, you know, we're trying to set up committees. We want to have these committees. We want to do things by committee. And it's really good. And one of the first rules is, is that there are no bad ideas. If you know me, when someone tells me there are no bad ideas, 
I'm immediately thinking of 27 really bad ideas. And I remember, again, I was younger. I was a Christian, so I had to ask for forgiveness. But I remember spending the rest of the time during our discussions, our brainstorming where there's no bad ideas, throwing out the worst ideas I could possibly think of. And this poor woman, she's just, you could tell, like, anger level rising, right? And I, t I tell that story because you hear people preaching tolerance, and they'll be preaching love and forgiveness and acceptance. But try disagreeing with them. Disagree with them. Draw the line and say, no, I don't agree with you. I don't think you're going to be met with love and forgiveness. In fact, you may be met with wrath. Well, that's kind of the sad news. Then in verse 4, we get the but God. But God, being rich in mercy, with Christ, what are we? With Christ, we are alive in him. Says God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead. God made us alive. How do you know you're alive? We're obviously not talking about a physical thing. How do we know we're alive? I think we know we're alive because we have God's spirit. But then you might ask the question, how do we know we have God's spirit? And I think we know we have God's spirit, not because we take perfect action, but I think we know we have God's spirit because we are pressed to always do what God's love would have us do. We might not always do it. We might not always do it well. But there's something inside of us that tells us, this is what I should do. And I shouldn't do it just because it's a rule God gave me. I should do it because God has changed me and poured out unto me his love. His spirit is within me, and his spirit is compelling me to do it. And I'm fighting with every fiber of my being not to do it. Sometimes it's that, that time when you see somebody who's kind of hurt or sad and, and you're just tr trying to pretend not to see them. And God's Spirit is saying, go over there and just ask them if you can pray with them. Oh, they're private. I'm private. If there's, if there's even a struggle inside of you that what you should do, I think that's evidence that God's love is somewhere in us. When that, when that person offends you, really offends you, and even though you're over here, sitting over here, and you're just like, there's no way I'm going to go and talk to them, but there's something inside of you. God's spirit is inside of you saying, you know this isn't right. You know need to work towards reconciliation and forgiveness. The, pre the, the, the presence of the Spirit is often indicated in that thing saying, I know what I should do. Even if I'm not doing it, I know I should. The scary part is when you say, no, I shouldn't. 
I shouldn't forgive. I shouldn't reconcile. I shouldn't love. That's a problem. It's not a problem when it's there and we fight it. But to me, that's what it means to be alive because to me, when, when we get this, the world changes. When we really are made alive in Christ, the world changes. Not just our thinking, not just our purpose, but our eyes change. We see the world through God's eyes. We see people the way God sees them. We don't see them as pests. We don't see them as troublemakers. We don't see them as burdens. We see them as creations of God in the image of God who are right there before us and God is giving us opportunity to do something. It's a different world we see. It's a different way of looking at each other in the body of Christ. It's a different way of looking at people that we encounter in our community that we read about in our news. We're alive in him. We're not just alive. It tells us, no, you're resurrected. You're exalted. You're with him. And this comes by faith. Because we are saved by faith. Well, it also tells us in verse 7, that he does this in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For great, by grace you have been saved through faith. You see, we're not children of wrath now. We're children of grace and love. And just, because, just how it talked about how as children of grace, of children of wrath is being with the wrath of God, but also being wrathful in ourselves. The same thing is true here. We're children of grace and love. God's grace and love has been poured out on us. But at the same time, we're children of grace. We pour out grace on others. And then, the last verse. The last verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are simultaneously God's workmanship and his workers. When we think about workmanship, this goes back to the title of this series, The Great Mystery. What is this great mystery? This great mystery is tied to workmanship because what God is making us to be, not making you to be, all the pronouns in this section are plural. He's talking to the church. It's not who you that he's making you to be, it's what is he making his people to be, his church to be? It's the great mystery. And he's going to really unpack this in the second half of this chapter. But we're his workmanship. He's making us into something. He's forming us into something. We're his workmanship. In some ways, you might say we are his, his masterpiece. But there's the other sense that we find here. We're not just his workmanship, his workmanship, we are his workers. We're created for good works. And these good works are not just things that God makes up as he goes. They were prepared beforehand. Before. And this implies it's before all things. Before God even created, he had in mind the works that we would do. We're workers. 
You see, this is how this, again, ties into Joshua and Caleb's inheritance. That Caleb's inheritance, what he got was not just land. It wasn't just money. He got a job. That was his inheritance. That's what we should look for. We should say, okay, God, what is our job? Give us something to do. You see, the problem is, is that when we start doing works, we start trusting our works, and then our works lead to some form of idolatry. We become very proud of our works. But when the works come from God, it doesn't happen. You don't become proud of works that were given to you by God and that were empowered by God for you to accomplish. That's why it says you don't boast. You don't boast about this. Just doing what God created and redeemed us to do. Just doing it. Otherwise, it does become idolatry. We become proud of our building or proud of our programs or proud of our ministries or proud of you know, how much money we have or proud of how many people we baptize or how many people are at our church or in our Sunday school. We become proud of all those things as though this is us. God says, you don't need to boast about those things. These are my works I gave to you from before the foundation of the world. Do them. Do them with confidence. Do them that you know that they are for good. Do them. And that's the question. That's the question that's before us is, you know, what is God making us to be? What is God getting ready for us to do? Do we ask that question? Do we even ask that question personally? Do we get up every morning and say, God, what is my purpose for you, for you today? What do you have for me today? Who are the people you need me to bless today? How do you need my life to change today? Is that our prayer every day? I think it should be. I think it's, it's important that, that we say, God, there's these works you've prepared for us, you've prepared even for me. Help me see them today. with or without Christ. Objects of wrath, without Christ. Objects of love, with Christ. Alive, with Christ. Dead, without Christ. With purpose, it comes from an eternal, loving, all-powerful God, with Christ. Without Christ, whatever purpose I can maybe adopt from someone else or put together on my own. With or without Christ, my prayer for you today is that you already are living with Christ. And if not, that would be your choice. 
That would be your deep prayer, that God would help you to live by faith, through grace, with Christ as your Lord and Savior.